Hindsight is always 2020. That's a phrase we use to mean that it is easier to look backwards than it is to look forwards. Uh, we're borrowing the, the measuring of eyesight from the optometrist. Uh, for many of us, 2020 vision is a fond memory that has faded into middle age. Speaking of myself there, but, but the saying means that things are clearer. They are more obvious when they are reflected upon. The future is a different matter entirely. So if you've ever had the experience of buying property, you know this. Uh, in the summer of 2008, uh, my wife and I were uh, meeting with a realtor in Louisville, Kentucky, thinking about buying a house, and the realtors are very good at dropping uh, little statements that will perk your interest. Well, the, the realtor said, uh, over the last 10 years in Louisville, property has increased at a rate of 3 to 6%. It's an offhanded comment, but I'm doing math in my mind, you know? goodness, this could be exciting. Well, not in that particular year. As six months later, we dropped into one of the largest financial crises that had happened in some time. I can tell you that property did not increase in that year. The stock market is even easier to mess with yourself about, right? I remember when Amazon seemed like a silly concept to me. I mean, what is it? It's a big warehouse somewhere where, where stuff can be bought. I mean, just go to the store and buy it. Silly concept. Who would want stock in Amazon? <laughs> we could set financial matters aside and go back to some pivotal decision-making point in our lives. Maybe a career choice. And we didn't know what to do. Should, should I uh, press on with my career? Should I go back to school and get a degree? Should I move to a new city or should I stay put? You, you made some kind of a decision. You made a call. Uh, maybe you look back on that decision now happily, maybe less so. But either way, you didn't know then what you know now, right? And that's the point. Hindsight is 2020. Uh, maybe some of you are looking out on a decision right now. Maybe you're a teenager thinking about colleges or career choices that are ahead of you. Maybe you're single and thinking about the kind of things that might make an ideal marriage partner. Whatever is the case, when we say that hindsight is 2020, we're acknowledging that we can only look back. We, we can't look forward with any kind of clarity or certainty. Uh, sure, we, we might get it right with so-called educated guesses, and, and we certainly hope that wisdom is going to help us as we navigate life's choices, but if we're honest, we get it wrong as often as we get it right in terms of ideal decision-making. I mean, we may like movies that have time travel in them, but there simply is no going back to correct mistakes that were made, and there's no going forward to see what's going to happen. All you and I have is the present. Unless, of course, we had some help. <laughs> Unless we knew someone who did not face the same limitations that we face. Ah, if someone knew the future, and we knew them, that would change things. Last month, we began a study in what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon 
that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. And it's really his last extended teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. It's all about the future. You see, while Jesus is not concerned with giving tips on purchasing property or on the stock market, uh, he is very concerned with helping his disciples have a very clear picture of the future in some regards. Now, he was clear that some things uh, they're not going to know. The exact timing of his return is one of those that will remain hidden. But other things about the future, not only does he want us to be clear about them, he teaches his disciples that their day-to-day lives should be impacted by their understanding of the future. They should be thinking about them. They should keep them close to their decision-making because it actually changes everything. That's what we're going to continue to study this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. That'll be on page 830 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then I'll give you an outline of our time this morning. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. If you're taking notes, you can write down this main idea. I think the main idea of the passage is living wisely for the future means living in light of Jesus' return. Living wisely for the future means living in light of Jesus' return. We've got a simple outline for studying the parable. Three questions we'll try to answer. Number one, what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? And number three, what should we do? What does it say? What does it mean? And what should we do? It's my prayer that as a result of Jesus' teaching, we will all walk out of here motivated to live in light of Jesus' return. So let's think about first, what does it say? Let's understand the parable. Uh, A parable is a story with a point. It's designed to leave you with something to think about. It's one of Jesus' favorite teaching methods. And the setting of this parable is a Jewish wedding in the first century. Now, we don't know all of the customs that would have surrounded a a Jewish wedding in the first century. We can piece some of them together here. You know, in in a modern wedding, there there are usually two main locations, right? There's a church 
uh, where the, the wedding ceremony will often take place, and then there's a reception hall or, or some place that the reception is held. Maybe it's an outdoor wedding. But two main locations. Uh, that was similar in ancient weddings, but the two main locations were the bride's house, uh, where often the ceremony would take place, and then the groom's house, or some sort of alternate feast location. Uh, the groom would come with his groomsmen to the, the house of the bride, and, and, and inside the bride's house, there, there probably would have been some sort of ceremony where the, the father of the bride would, would give her away to the groom. And then they would travel to the groom's house with all the invited guests for the wedding feast with a great celebration. And what, what creates the, the celebratory feel, or at least part of that, is the people who join this procession. From one place to the next. Maybe there would have been singing and, and shouting, maybe dancing. And here we're told that there were ten virgins that were part of the bridegroom's welcoming party. Now, now the word virgin to our, our ears uh, makes us think about uh, sexual intimacy. Uh, in the ancient context, it meant something more like a, a young woman of marriageable age. Uh, this is quite separate from the, the point that Jesus is making. But in an age consumed with removing any limitations on sex, it's worth remembering that the, the clear biblical worldview is one where sex is treasured and it's exalted precisely because it's reserved for a married couple. So these ten young women, they're to be part of the festal wedding procession. They're waiting at the house of the groom. So that at the right moment, they can come out and announce the arrival of the groom. Um, weddings may have been held purposely at night. That would have created a more impressive ambiance. Maybe you can imagine that here. The, the lamps that they would have had, uh, we're not sure exactly what they would have been like. It may have been a, a little lamp that you add oil to. It may have been something as simple as a, a stick with some cloth wrapped around it and dipped in oil. But in any event, they would burn for only a brief time if you didn't have oil to add, which is why you would need a flask of oil, a container of oil with you. And that's the pivotal turn in the parable here. We've got ten young women with their lamps. Verse 1 tells us they're going to go meet the bridegroom. That's their stated purpose. But in verse 2, we're told that they're not all the same. So we've got five foolish and five wise. Jesus is preparing us right at the start for things not to go well with half of them. Verses 3 and 4, the, the distinction we're told is that the foolish took lamps, but no oil, whereas the wise took both. And then we have a delay. So look down there at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. The idea of a delay which allows for a crucial difference to come to light, it happens often in Jesus' parables, um, but different than in some of the parables where falling asleep is, is the great sin and Jesus is trying to tell people to stay awake, that doesn't seem to be the issue here, does it? All ten of them fall asleep. Verse 6, we are told at midnight, after this long delay, it's a late wedding, well, someone calls out that the bridegroom is here. It's midnight. This is the moment that their preparation for being who they say they are is at a premium. They need to get up. 
They need to get their lamps, they need to put oil in them, and they need to go out. There's no time for anything else. But a fateful difference is here exposed. Foolish virgins didn't prepare any oil. Their lamps won't stay lit. Without them, they can't go out to meet the bridegroom. Verse 8 there, they, they ask to borrow some from the wise. Verse 9, they're rebuffed. I think we should take the, the wise virgin's word at face value here that there isn't enough to share. So, so they're told to go buy some for themselves. While they're doing that, the bridegroom comes, goes in with the wedding party to the feast, and the door is shut. Then the five foolish virgins show up and they want to get in, but, but he tells them that he doesn't know them. You may notice that towards the end of the parable here, the, the, the story kind of fades to the background a little bit and the, the spiritual point that Jesus is making comes to the foreground. I think that's important to notice because it keeps us from asking questions like, why couldn't they open a first century door? Why is this such a final thing? Well, the, the parable is, is receding and Jesus' teaching is coming to the foreground. Now, when you hear this parable, I think there's one question that should linger in your mind. Why did the foolish virgins not bring oil? That's the thought-provoking and not completely answered question, right? Why would you say you're waiting for the bridegroom and then not do the most basic of preparations for his actual arrival? That seems ridiculous. Uh, I was trying to think of an illustration of this. It'd be like a friend of yours that lives in California asks you to be in his wedding, and you agree. But then you don't buy a plane ticket to California. The day of the wedding comes, and he calls you up and says, hey, where are you? And you're like, what? Huh? It's just kind of ridiculous. I think that that helps us zero in on what the parable means. Uh, just to emphasize, we don't have five people who did something extraordinary in this parable. Something above and beyond, and then five who didn't. Uh, we don't have five paragons of virtue and then five wicked, despicably wicked people. What we've got is five that act perfectly consistently with what they're supposed to be doing and five that simply don't. So that's point one. What does it say? Let's think point two. What does it mean? What is Jesus teaching us here through this parable? I think there are three truths that are lying right on the surface here that Jesus wants to teach us. Uh, number one, the church is made up of true believers and superficial believers. Uh, we could say true believers and nominal believers. Nominal meaning in name only. Now we know he's talking about the church here because all ten profess to be waiting for the bridegroom, right? And we know Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. He, he likes to use this image of himself. Uh, probably most Christian weddings you've been to have a reading from Ephesians chapter 5 where husbands are exhorted to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In that picture, he's the groom, the church is the bride. Uh, that's drawing on the same idea, Jesus is the groom. Uh, the, the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this very picture of Jesus returning as a bridegroom. Uh, so the church is sometimes pictured as the bride, but sometimes the metaphor of the bridegroom is used differently. So in Matthew chapter 9, the church is pictured as the wedding guests. 
When Jesus says, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? And the church here is these young women waiting for him, some truly and some nominally. Now, why would this be? Why would Jesus speak of his church as mixed, the true and the pretenders? Well, it's useful to remember that already in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13, Jesus has taught the parable of the weeds. Uh, His illustration there was from the world of farming, from the world of growing wheat. And he taught there that though weeds might grow up around the wheat, if you're overly uh, diligent in trying to remove all of the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat with it. So so you can't do that. There, there, There are some things that can't be fully and finally dealt with until harvest time, until the crop is harvested. So in the church, there is a sense in which we cannot finally and fully discern things. At our Wednesday evening Bible study this week, we were looking at John chapter 3, where Jesus speaks about salvation in terms of being born again. His point to Nicodemus there was that uh, being saved, converting to Christianity is a a new birth. It's like a, a, a physical birth, but it's a spiritual birth. It's about new life. So when a person truly turns away from sin and believes in him, what he did on the cross to pay for sin, they are spiritually born. There is new life where there was no life. Uh, That is what is meant by conversion. It's an actual reality. It's it's not just a temporary choice of identity. I'm, I'm identifying as a Christian for now. No, true conversion is an actual reality. But here's the thing. Because you and I can't see into someone's heart, we're not qualified to be the ultimate judge of whether that's taken place or not. I say ultimate judge because it isn't as if Jesus doesn't want us to do anything at all. A person who doesn't say they believe basic Christian truths or isn't living a basically Christian life is not a Christian. And we're told many times in the New Testament to be clear about that. So churches are wise to have membership classes that clarify what the church is and what it believes. Believes Churches are wise to get to know people and make sure they understand the gospel. Uh, A membership interview is a wonderful thing for pastors to do with potential new members. In in our church in Shanghai, I I, I get the same thing after almost every membership interview. Somebody will say to me, Mark, it wasn't that bad. And I'll be like, well, what were you expecting? I just wanted to talk to you over a cup of coffee. Help me spread the word. Uh, Those are good and loving things for churches to do to help clarify the gospel. And certainly when someone comes along calling themselves a Christian, but they're living a brazenly immoral lifestyle or they're teaching heretical doctrine, well, everyone's helped by by churches saying that's not Christian. Just everyone be clear that that's not the way a Christian lives. That's not what a Christian believes. But really, none of that... None of that clarifying that we can do is what's in view in this parable, is it? Here the issue isn't one that's initially noticed. The problem doesn't become evident until the end. Unfortunately, I can think of many examples of people I've known who who lived as a Christian for some time. And then they decided that they didn't believe anymore. Uh, Perhaps they, they decided that they really wanted the freedom 
of being able to do whatever they wanted to, and so they're no longer living as a Christian. And that's a real issue, the, the question of persevering in the profession that you have today. But Jesus is here helping us see a different and in some ways a more dangerous problem, the problem of self-deception. It's what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about when he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, Our hearts are deceitful, aren't they? Sometimes we try to deceive ourselves. Sometimes we try to deceive others, pretending to love the Lord when we don't. Sometimes we even try to deceive God as if that were even possible. So as sobering as that is, that is what Jesus wants us to realize here. Just being a professing believer, being in a church, saying you're waiting for the bridegroom, does not automatically make it so. That's number one. A second truth that's right on the surface here. Salvation is an individual matter. Salvation is an individual matter. One of the most interesting aspects of this story is the interaction between the wise and the foolish as the bridegroom approaches. I wonder what you made of that. Look look again there at verse 8. Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But in verse 9, the wise virgins say, go by your own. We don't have enough. I was thinking about how this, this wouldn't be permitted in our house. I mean, parents, we're trying to teach our children to share, right? I mean, uh, one of the wonderful things about being in the U.S. for us is Cheez-Its. We love Cheez-Its. Can't get Cheez-Its in China. Um, if one of my children is eating a bowl of Cheez-Its and another children, so, so child A has a bowl of Cheez-Its. Child B comes along and says, hey, can I have a Cheez-It? And child A says, no, go buy your own at the store. I mean, that, that's not going to fly in the Collins household, okay? So, so what's, what's going on here? Some interpreters also point out how doubtful it is that any oil dealers would be open at midnight. Okay, Now, I don't think either of those things are the point here. This isn't about the wise being selfish and not sharing. What Jesus is making very clear is that when it comes to salvation, this is an individual matter. You are either truly waiting for the return of the bridegroom, which means you've prepared for the return of the bridegroom, or you haven't, and nobody else can do it for you. This is really important for us to understand. The the fact that your spouse is prepared doesn't help you. It's not as if one spiritually healthy person per household is enough. Sadly, I've seen that situation too often where where one spouse is trying to pull the other along spiritually. Christian spouses and and Christian marriages, it should be more like training partners where we're encouraging each other along. We're, We're spurring each other along. What would you say to someone that was thinking that because their spouse got the coronavirus vaccine, then they are somehow covered? I mean, you would, you would say to them, I don't think you understand how this works. Not spouses, parents, you can't believe for your kids. This should lead you to nag less and pray more. For you young people here, for the, the children here, understand that your parents 
can't believe the gospel for you. They love you. Uh, They want to urge you to believe. They want to set a good example for you. They'd love to teach you the gospel, but they can't do it for you. Uh, I want you to understand that we take you seriously here. You know, these sermons that are preached up here are for you as children. You may say to yourself, well, well, then why are they so long? And that's a valid point. But, But we intend to be speaking to you. One of the reasons why you won't see a lot of children being baptized up here is because we want to allow time for you to hear the gospel and understand it. And then as you grow, face something that you're going to have to face, which is the pull of the world and the pull of your own desires that take you in a different way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to to feel those things and then say, you know what? Even though I might be tempted this direction, I want to follow Jesus Christ. We want to allow time for you to think about that and, and to reach a place where you are ready to follow him before we dunk you under the water. We do want to urge you to believe. We do want you to hear the good news of the gospel and say, oh, I understand that Jesus is the only payment for my sin. And I want to trust in that good news of the gospel. And I want to follow Jesus all the days of my life. We pray that that will be true for you. But all of us here need to understand that salvation is an individual matter. Nobody can do it for you. There's a third truth that's right here on the surface, which is that Jesus' return means a solemn and a fixed separation. Jesus' return means a solemn and a fixed separation. It's the final scene we're left with here, right? Uh, The marriage feast is happening. But four words, the door was shut. Again, the parable is different than normal life. It makes the point all the more emphatic. Uh, We're late all the time for things in life, and it doesn't matter, right? I often joke with with, uh, our church in China. Uh, We we meet in a long rectangular room. It's even narrower and longer. I sit in the front row. Sometimes right as the the service is starting, I glance around, and it's a light Sunday. A lot of people must be traveling. And by the time I get up here to pray or to preach, I'm like, where did all these people come from? So I, I joke with them. I tell them many Chinese churches... When the time, if it starts at 10, they shut the doors and they ain't going to open again for security reasons. So you either make it in or you're on the outside. So I threaten my church, I'm going to do the same thing. They don't believe that I'm going to, obviously, because it has had no effect. But here, we're meant to see a door that once it's shut, it is shut. There's a finality to it here. It may be hard for us to imagine a scene like that here on earth. Look at it again. They, they come saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. It's the language of familiarity. It, it's us. You know, we, we're part of the wedding party. You, you know us. Verse 12. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus is teaching that at his return, this crucial difference that goes beyond the surface to the reality of things underneath will result in a fixed separation. The feasting is taking place inside. It's a place of joy. It's a place of fellowship. 
outside is a place of darkness, a place of judgment, where decisions made in life are solidified for eternity. That is what Jesus says. So three truths we are taught here. Number one, the church is a mix of true believers and superficial. Second, salvation is an individual matter. And third, there is a coming separation at Jesus' return. Well, in light of those truths, let's think third and finally, what should we do? What do we do? How do we apply this text? One thing to say is that uh, Jesus intends us to apply it, right? That's why he's teaching it. We're meant to pull away and think, do I have oil in my flask? Am I just saying that I'm waiting for the bridegroom? Or am I actually living that way? Am I prepared? I want us to think here uh, both about the how and the why of living in light of Jesus' return. So first, the how. How do we live in light of Jesus' return? Well, we can see him pointing to the how in verse 13. Watch, therefore. He's been saying this in the sermon already. Be vigilant. Be prepared. Pay attention. He's telling them that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We can understand that. We, we should be consciously thinking about the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ. Even as Mike said before I got up here, if he doesn't return this moment, because he could return this moment. You know neither the hour of his return or the time of your own death. And so you've got two excellent reasons to be conscious of it today. Either way, every one of us here will stand before the Lord. That's why it's essential that we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins today. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, turn away from your sin. It has done nothing for you except condemn you. Turn away from it and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross to pay for sin is the only payment available before a holy God. But it is available. You can believe it today and be saved. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we should make application of this too. The parable calls us to make sure that our life matches our profession, doesn't it? You can't say you're waiting for the bridegroom and then not live like you're waiting for the bridegroom. So as we consider that today, I want to give you two practical areas to evaluate your own life. First, pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. The, the New Testament regularly connects the return of Christ with the pursuit of holiness. That's what Peter does in 2 Peter 3. He, he asks them, since the day of the Lord is coming, what kind of people should you be as you wait for him in godliness and holiness? And that makes sense, right? In the same way, last month we talked about uh, being found about the pastor's business when he returns. Well, we want to be found in the pursuit of holiness when he returns. And notice there I say pursuit, not perfection. The pursuit of holiness means repenting of sin when the Lord reveals it to us. Not dodging it, not defending it, facing it and forsaking it. It means going back to the gospel and remembering that we're saved by Jesus' righteousness, not our own record of righteousness. It also means going back and saying, I'd like to grow in being kinder, kinder and gentler 
in the way I talk to my children. I'd like to work on being more servant-minded and less selfish in my church relationships. I'd like to wean myself of looking at inappropriate TV shows and movies and websites. I'd like to say no to harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. I'm pursuing holiness because the bridegroom is coming. So ask yourself this morning, are you a person that is pursuing holiness? There's a second area we could evaluate, and that's redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. The parable here centers on a delay, this gap of time that that allows for the difference to become clear. How we use our time says a lot about us, says a lot about what we value. We should view our time as a resource to be used in God-honoring ways. Coronavirus has brought disruption to our lives in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, More of us are working from home. Sometimes with quarantine, we find ourselves at home with a lot of extra time. One of the things I noticed when we flew back from China to the U.S. last May, I started listening to uh, Christian radio as I drive in my car and, and some Christian podcasts. And one of the things I noticed a number of Christian leaders joking about was uh, with all this time we have, we need to have some, uh, a list of binge-worthy TV shows at the ready. And, and the idea seemed to be, you know, we're stuck at home all this time, so, so here are three binge-worthy TV shows. Now, I don't intend here to make any comment about Christian freedom or about the appropriate use, use of leisure time. But as I'm listening to this, I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't need any help to, to indulge my flesh and my desires and think about wasting time. I mean, that comes naturally to me. I would much rather, if you challenge me, if, if I find myself with, with hours stretching out in front of me, how could I use them for my own spiritual good, for other people's spiritual good, to the glory of God? Brothers and sisters, that, that's the kind of challenge that I think we need. I just discovered recently that the book nook in the back is free books. I mean, seriously, there are wonderful books. In, I'll go out that door, turn left. You can just take them and walk out onto the street. I mean, the only thing the elders are asking is that you commit to read them. I mean, you've got to do that this morning before they change their mind, because that's crazy. I mean, go get some Christian books and read them. Uh, link up with somebody else and say, hey, let, let's, let's take the next month and pick a book of the Bible and study it together and then meet up. doesn't matter if you do it on Zoom, although you should do it in person, in my humble opinion. But get together and talk about the Bible. Uh, maybe use extra time to work on your prayer life. Uh, a list of, of things and people that you want to pray for more regularly. Beloved, redeem the time for the days are evil. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul told us to do with time? So pursuing holiness and redeeming the time are good ways for us to think about living in light of the Master's return. Uh, That's some thoughts on how. I also want to ask us the why question. Why should I live in light of his return? Because I think Jesus is so consistently in his teaching, he doesn't just tell you what to do, he tells you why you should do it. 
He wants to motivate you. He wants to grab your heart. I think he does that in the way he frames the parable here. Just calling them wise and foolish virgins sets it up. You know, when a person familiar with the Old Testament hears wise and foolish, probably immediately start thinking about the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Maybe specifically the book of Proverbs. You may not realize this, but the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is a unified unit. It's redundant. It's written from a parent to a child. Solomon keeps saying over and over again, my son, my son. And then he tries to tell them how to live wisely and not foolishly. It'd be a great part of scripture, by the way, if you're trying to start family devotions in your home, just use Proverbs 1 to 9, start reading it section by section and talk about it as a family. But as you read chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, you will feel it building to the climax that Dan read earlier in the service. Uh, the, the climax is these, this dramatic scene where two women, Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly, find a high place in the city, and initially they start calling out the same message. Whoever is simple, turn in here. Come over. Get wisdom. But then the message changes, doesn't it? For Lady Wisdom, she says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, be wise. Seek the Lord. Find life. But for Dame Folly, it's different. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. In other words, live for yourself. Live for pleasure. You do you. Be an authentic person. Find what is in your heart and live for that. She's loud. She's seductive. But the last verse says her hearer doesn't realize that she's inviting them to the realm of the dead. What Solomon's trying to do with his son is help him to desire wisdom because, of how, because his son will see how much truer and better that pathway is. That pathway is not a facade. It's not a mirage. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here, beloved. He's trying to motivate our hearts. He wants to hear this and go, I want to be wise. It's so much better in the short term. I get to live with a clear conscience instead of feeling like a pretender. And it's so, so much better in the long term. Jesus wants to win our hearts to the way of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowledge of the Holy One. Not intellectual knowledge, but experiential, real, knowing God. And that's where the sobering words to the foolish virgins should grab us and shake us when he says, I don't know you. This is where we should finish too. Asking ourselves, do I know God? Does he know me? Do I have a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ? Beloved, the future in so many ways is unknown to us. We may look at things going on around us in the world and, and, and feel the frustration of them. We feel the frustration of our own inability to make 
perfect decisions, so much uncertainty, so much error. We have to shrug off so many of those by saying, well, hindsight is 2020. But when you know the Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom whose return is your joy and your eager expectation, then you can actually look out on the future with 2020 vision. It's clear to you. So friends, know the Lord through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your great love, both in teaching your disciples and in the reality that you are returning again for them. I pray that you would help us to know what it means to live in light of your return this morning and for us to walk out of here motivated to do that. Help us to be wise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.